Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers who comes upon us or overflows from our lives to help us to be effective witnesses for you. So, Lord, we're just so thankful. We're thankful that you allow us to partner with you in your work. And so, Father, we pray that you help us to be obedient. We pray for guidance. We pray that as we um, partake of this study that you would help us to have open and receptive hearts. And I do pray for the gift of teaching not just for me, but all across this campus, Lord, where your word is being taught and for every servant who will be serving in any way, Lord. Fill them afresh with your spirit. And we ask that by your grace and mercy, you'll keep everyone on this campus safe from harm, Lord. And wherever your word is being taught um, in this this neighborhood or in this state or, or wherever it's being taught, Lord, in this country on this night, Lord, we pray. Um, that your word to go forth, Lord, and accomplish whatever purpose you have set for it. And may you and only you be glorified in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 And so we are still in our series entitled All About Jesus. Uh, tonight we are in part four, and part four is entitled The Works of Christ. The Works of Christ. And so we're going to look at the works of Christ up until his death. And we're going to give um, the resurrection its own study because there's so much to cover. And so, again, we're going to look at the works of Christ up until his death. Now, keep in mind that whatever Jesus did on earth as human, because remember, he's fully God, fully human, or some would say he's truly God, truly man, the God man. And so on earth, as he did his works, he actually operated in the power of the Holy Spirit, even as the son of God. Because remember, he took on frail humanity for a time. um, He became a little lower than the angels. So he depended on the father. He temporarily he and voluntarily, um, you know, gave up the independent use or set aside the independent use of his divine prerogatives. And so, um, as I mentioned in the previous studies, so, so some of those omni um, words, uh, omniscience and him being omnipresent, that means, well, omniscient means all knowing, omnipresent means everywhere at the same time. Like, like those things he temporarily and voluntarily set aside. He set aside the independent use of them and he went through that full experience as a human. So he knows what we've been through. He knows how we feel so he can be a faithful high priest to us. Scriptures even tell us he was tempted at all points as we were, except Jesus never sinned. So he is perfect in his divine nature and he is perfect in his human nature. And as human, as I mentioned, he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit, even when he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to God. And that is according to Hebrews Chapter 9, verse 14, says that he, through the eternal spirit, he offered himself as a sacrifice 
to God. And so the first work of Christ that I want to share is that he created the universe. The scriptures, of course, tell us that you can go to John chapter one and see that. And then there's verses there on the screen. Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 17. He is creator. There was not anything made that was not made by him. The scripture tell us everything was made through him. Everything was made for him. He is creator. We establish that he is God. But also. As we talk about the works of Christ, he came to fulfill prophecy. And just in my study time, as I was skimming through uh, the gospel, according to Matthew, I noticed all of these scriptures just, just telling us how he fulfilled this and fulfilled that. So it will share what Jesus did, and then it'll bring in the Old Testament scripture of how he fulfilled it. And these are just some of the verses that I spotted. And so he came to fulfill prophecy. It's another work of Christ. But also, as we shared in the previous study, he revealed the Father. And so if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you want to know how the invisible God is, then look at the person of Jesus. If you want to know the attributes of God and the attributes of God are those things about him that are true about him. For example, he is holy. It's an attribute of God. It's something he reveals about himself that is true about him. And so we see that in the life of Jesus. We see that in his person. And so there's a couple of scriptures there you can refer to. John chapter 1, verse 18, and Colossians 1, 15. But yes, Jesus, once again, said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But another work that he did is that he served others. According to Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, as he was teaching the disciples, his followers, uh, about Humility. You know, he told them that the one who is great is actually the servant or slave to all. And then Jesus brings himself in to the conversation or what he was teaching them. And he told them that, hey, even I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so he came to serve others, stepped out of eternity, took on frail human flesh, came in the form of a bond servant, submitted to the will of the father. He wanted to just open up blessings for us. Adam, of course, put us in the bad spot. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he came to fix things. He came to serve and so the fifth work of Christ that I want to share is that he went around teaching and preaching. The teacher of all teachers, the preacher of all preachers. And so was Jesus a great teacher? Absolutely, he was a great teacher, but he was more than that. 
more than a great teacher. Was he a great preacher? Absolutely. But he is more than a preacher. So what's the difference between teaching and preaching? The word teaching comes from a Greek word, didasko. It means to hold discourse with others in order to instruct them, to, de- to deliver didactic discourses, to impart instruction, to explain or expound a thing. This is what happens in our church gatherings. And so for, for believers, we do mostly teachings because uh, the purpose is to equip you, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so you're, you're learning doctrine and so forth. But, but preaching behind that word is a Greek word and it's pronounced keruso. And it means to publish. It means to proclaim openly something which has been done. It is used, this word is used of the public proclamation of the gospel and matters that pertain to the gospel made by John the Baptist, by Jesus, by the apostles and other Christian teachers. And so preaching is what we would do when we go out and share the gospel with those who are not saved. We're proclaiming what Jesus has done, what God has done through Christ. We're proclaiming the the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're proclaiming that. And so Jesus, he went around teaching and preaching. And you can see that in those verses there, Matthew 4, 23, and also Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. But Jesus also performed miracles. And these miracles was proof of, of his deity, of the fact that he is God, that, that, he's, that yes, he's fully human, that yes, he's truly man, but not just, this man, just a man. He is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh. But those miracles also showed that whatever message he was, he was preaching is valid, is true. And there I have a definition of miracle that I got from the Baker Compact Dictionary of Theological Terms. It says that a miracle is a supernatural, extraordinary event that diverges from observed natural processes. So it's something that we, we, we don't see happen all the time. Something that, of course, man cannot fix. It's not natural according to what we normally see and we see many miracles performed by Jesus we see him tame the waves and the storms we we've seen him heal the sick we've we've seen him give sight to the blind give hearing to the deaf we've seen him loose the tongue of the deaf uh, not of the deaf but of the mute the one who can't speak We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him uh, feed the hungry. And why is that a miracle? Well, if you read the account of him feeding 5,000, 5,000 men, that was besides women and children. And so if, if every man had a wife who was there and had at least one child, that could possibly be really about 15,000. 
that he fed. If my math is correct, I'm an English major. Forgive me if it's wrong. But I think that, like I said, if, if at least one man had a wife and a child, it could be at least 15,000 that he fed. Then in another case, he fed 4,000. That, that's a miracle. He, he multiplied whatever food was there. And everybody was fooled. Everybody was satisfied. That is a miracle. And of course, we've seen him raise the dead. For example, he raised Lazarus, his good friend, from the dead. And so he performed miracles. That's, that's also a part of the works of Christ while he was on earth. But then he also destroyed the works of the devil. In fact, 1 John 3, 8 says this. It says, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And so this is not talking about a one-off sin. This is talking about habitual sin, a lifestyle of sin. In other words, this is a pattern of your life. This is not an exception to the rule, but the person who sins as a pattern of their life, it says is of the devil. The devil sinned from the beginning. And it says, for this purpose, the son of God was manifested or revealed that he might destroy the works of the devil. And destroy metaphorically here could mean he came to overthrow or to do away with the works of the devil. Whatever works the, the devil, the enemy has done, and whatever works he's trying to devise, what Jesus did, what caused it to be overthrown, caused it to be ineffective. You know, there's a Bible scholar, Stott, this is his last name, he suggests that, that if then the whole purpose of Christ first appearing was to remove sins and to undo the works of the devil, if that was the case, he said, then Christians must not compromise with either sin or the devil, or they will find themselves fighting against Christ. So is that wise that, that, that a that a Christian or somebody who claims to be Christians would participate in the works of the devil if that's what Christ came to destroy? No, it wouldn't be wise. And so you could take a look at some other verses there, Colossians 2, uh, 15, you know, this, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And so the, the scriptures tell us that he disarmed um, the enemies disarm the enemy as well as his army, those principalities and so forth. Disarmed them. It, it tells us that he destroyed uh, the devil, that he took, you know, the tool that the devil used, which was death. He would use death to, to keep people in bondage because they feared death. And so Jesus took that away. So he disarmed the enemy overthrew the works of the devil. And then number eight, we're going to spend the most time here in regard to the works of Christ. He died on the cross. And so we know that very well. But we're going to go through a few terms and a few benefits of him dying on the cross that, that maybe you know already and, and maybe you, it's just a reminder for you and it may be new to some. 
But it's interesting reading about this and gaining a greater appreciation for Christ and all the works he's done and, and an appreciation for, for him and his death. And, and one thing we want to take note of in regard to the death of Christ is that his death was preordained. It was planned from eternity. Planned from eternity. We also know that the death of Christ was the main reason that he took upon a human body. The main reason he took upon a human body. And there's quite a few more things to note about the death of Christ. And we do know the the next point. Because the, the next point in regard to What to take note about the death of Christ is that it was motivated by love. The scriptures tell us, of course, you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. So it was motivated by love. While we were yet sinners, Christ, God sent his son to die for us. While we were yet sinners, not even thinking about him, he did that. For us, motivated by love. But, but also his death was vicarious. His death, in other words, was substitutionary. Was, he, he stood in as a substitute for us. In other words, we deserve the wrath from God the Father, but, but he stepped in as our substitute. And so his death was vicarious. And he didn't die for his own sin, by the way. Totally innocent. Sinless. Had no sin. Took upon human nature, but did not take on the sin nature. There was no sin for him to confess. Never done anything wrong. So he didn't die for his own sin, but as our substitute. And so what we see here as Jesus became our substitute and died in our place, what we see here is that the offended party become the substitute. So God is the offended party. How is he the offended party? Well, because he has this perfect standard of righteousness. He has the law. Perfect came from him. The standard of morality and, and we broke it. So God is the offended party. And so what you have here is the offended party, God, because Jesus being the son of God. It's another way of saying he has the same nature of God as God, which means that he's equal to God in his essence. So he is God. So you have the offended party stepping in, taking the punishment that we deserve. That is like a parent spanking himself or herself for something that their own child did. Does it make sense? Not not for us, not according to, to, to what we can understand. The child broke, broke curfew. The child is acting up at school. The child is talking back to some adult or whatever. They're, they're, they're just acting up, acting crazy. So you said, okay, wait until we get home. You're going to do blah, 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 blah. You fill in the blank. 
for me, I know what it was. When I got home, it, it was, you know, got the belt. <laughs> and then I turned out okay. A few twitches here and there. I'm okay. <laughs> but, you know, pop the sight the head. That was, that's what I got. Stuff like that. But, but imagine, you know, the parents saying, okay, wait till we get home. You get your uh, chastisement, whatever that may be. Get grounded for I don't know how long. You, you have to um, pull up the weeds in the big backyards, especially the, the backyards that just ha- just full of rocks, not even grass. And imagine you stepping in for your own child, taking that punishment, taking the chastisement that you said they would get. Th- this is what we see here. Our, our creator, the offended party, becoming the substitute. So it was a vicarious death, a substitutionary death. And, and so also in the death of Christ, something else that we see is that God's justice is satisfied. God's justice is satisfied. And so God's justice says that you get what you deserve. So, so you did this wrong thing, so you get the wrath that comes along with it. That's justice. Getting what we really deserve. But, but when, Jesus, when Jesus stepped in and became our substitute, he took the justice upon himself. He took the wrath of God upon himself. And so what I want to do is look at Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 21 through 26. And we're going to notice something interesting about the justice of God. Because some of us, you know, may have been thinking, well, how can I be forgiven? And I, I didn't pay for anything. And there, there's some people who actually feel so guilty, who actually feels that it's so easy to be saved. Why well, you just repent and put your faith in Christ? You just saved by grace through faith? No, I have to do something. I, I don't, it, it, it can't be that easy. He, he made it that way. He did the heavy lifting. And all he requires is that we repent. We turn from our sin and put our trust in him for salvation. That's what he requires. But, but he did all the work. But some may be wondering, well, is, is, is that really just? I'm not really taking the punishment for it, but I still get to be forgiven. Well, well Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26 says, but, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets is another way of talking about the Old Testament. And so righteousness apart from the law. So in other words, uh, you know, can nobody try to perfectly keep the law or do a bunch of good things to earn righteousness? Just can't happen because if you break one, you're guilty of them all. As one preacher put it, if you have a chain with 10 links on it, hence 10 commandments, and it's attached to a cliff, if just one of those links break, not even all of them, just one, you fall. And so nobody's going to be declared righteous or justified by trying to keep the law. It says, even the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. 
We fall short of God's perfect standard. We all fall short. So, so all of us need to come to God through faith and be declared righteous, not through any of our works, because we've all sinned. And it says in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Notice you see grace and faith here to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, because in other words, because in God's restraint, he passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, so God, because of what Jesus did, because Jesus stepped in as our substitute and because he took the wrath of God, because he, he took the justice that we deserve, you have God's justice satisfied. So that means that, that God didn't change anything about his character. He still remained just. In other words, he, he didn't just sweep the sin under the rug. And just say, oh, okay, the sin is not going to be dealt with. No, he remained just that the sin got what it deserved. The only thing is that Jesus is the one who took that justice, who took the wrath of the father. So God is able to be just, even though he's able to justify the sinner. And justified means that he declares us righteous. And so... That is your position in Christ. That does not change. Once you repent, put your faith in Christ, he, declare, he pounds the gavel. You're declared righteous as if you never sinned. And so in other words, he looks at us through the lens. If you see, you pretend Jesus is a pair of glasses. He, he looked, God the Father looks at us through the lens of Jesus and his sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so he looks at us as if we never sinned. Not only that, not only we, did, we, we declare righteous, but of course, we're no longer in condemnation. That's why the scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation for the one who's in Christ Jesus. In other words, picture Christ as your ark. You remember Noah's ark, right? So picture Christ as your ark. You are in the ark of Jesus Christ. If you are in the ark of Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. You are justified. You are cleared of all charges. That is your position in Christ. And so God, in other words, justified you, but he's still just because he still dealt with the sin issue. It was still paid for. We, we're just able to take advantage of it in a good way. Through faith in Christ. But another thing we see about the death of Christ is that God's law is satisfied because the law or the breaking of the law results in the penalty. Well, Jesus took that penalty for us. But then there's something else that the death of Jesus Christ is involved in. And that is in a word that's called atonement um, in the Hebrew um, the word is kafir, 
And it means to cover over so as not to be seen. So Jesus' death, his blood covers over our sin. It actually washes it away. But, but picture it covering over our sin so that God doesn't see it. And, and, and that allows, because it's been dealt with, been atoned for, that allows us to have a relationship with God. Now we can return to friendly terms with God the Father because the sins have been atoned for because of the blood of Jesus. And so the sacrifice for sin, when we talk about uh, the atonement of Christ or the atonement that he provided through his death, that sacrifice for sin turns away any condemnation that was due to us. And once again, it restores people to God. But then we've seen this other word here in Romans chapter 3. And not in, I purposely didn't describe it there because we're getting to it. And, and the word is propitiation. And that's because the death of Christ is involved in propitiation. That's why I mentioned that word. It was propitiatory. In other words, Jesus' death, it, it satisfied the payment for sin in order to um, avoid the wrath of God against sin. So in other words, since payment has been made for sin, God's wrath for that sin has been appeased or satisfied because God is just and pouring out his wrath on sin, but and, and he's just in condemning any of us sinners. But he wanted to give us a way out. And so Jesus became that appeasement. He became that propitiation. So now God's wrath is satisfied. And once again, that opens up the door. Since his wrath against sin is satisfied, that opens up the door for what we call reconciliation. You see, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, in, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son, in other words, to be the satisfaction of his wrath against sin. Jesus stepped in. He did that for us. Notice, once again, going back to an earlier point, the motivation, once again, is love. And not that we love God, but, but God initiated it. So God gets the glory for salvation. He initiated this by his love. And so also, speaking of that term reconciliation that I brought up earlier, Jesus' death is involved in reconciliation now there, there's a point that's, that's brought up that I, I, I want to read from this book that's entitled lectures in systematic theology it, it says closely connected with the idea of propitiation is the thought of reconciliation so propitiation what we just talked about you know God's wrath against sin being satisfied that's what we just talked about so that and the thought of reconciliation are connected. It says that the two ideas seem to be related to each other as cause and effect. So in other words, Christ's death propitiated God. It appeased God's wrath against sin. 
And as a result, God is reconciled. So what you have here is, you know, go back to the garden. You have Adam. You have Eve, of course, and you have God. What you have here is Adam and Eve sinning. And so you have man turning away from God by disobeying. And as a result of that, now you have God, okay, turning away from man because sin is there. But then you have Jesus, the substitute, the propitiation, stepping in, satisfying the the righteous wrath of God against sin, becoming that appeasement. And so when Jesus did what he did through his death, now you have God turning back towards man. So God turned back towards man with the arms wide open. So, So the only thing left to do is for man to stop showing God the back of his head and turn around and face him and complete the process of reconciliation. But there would be no opportunity for reconciliation if Jesus had not satisfied the righteous demand of God against sin, the righteous wrath of God against sin. And so when we talk about reconciliation or being reconciled to God, what you're talking about is two parties who were once on good terms, now on bad terms, now coming back together in fellowship, back on good terms. So, so that's because of the work of Jesus. But another thing we, we learned about Jesus' death from the scriptures is that his death is a ransom. See, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And so here, so we park for a minute and we talk about ransom because the idea of ransom is that of a payment of a price to redeem slaves or captives. The ransom is the price to secure the freedom of slaves or captives. And notice this, the the ransom is not paid to Satan. The ransom is paid to God because God is the holy God who has been offended. He's the party who's been offended. So the ransom's paid to him. Jesus paid that. He's our ransom. He paid the price to set us free from slavery, from captivity to sin. And so... I think we need to really remember that, that, that this payment, this ransom is to God. And so when we talk about redemption, because remember that ransom is the payment of a price to redeem slaves or captives. Now you, you turn the word into a noun. You turn redeem into a noun. We had, you know, T-I-O-N. It's, it's redemption now. So we're talking about redemption And so redemption, what that alludes to is sometimes the the payment of a death, of a debt. And sometimes it refers to the release of a captive. But the beautiful thing about the sacrifice of Christ, about his death, is that it provides both the payment of a debt and also the release of a captive. So in other words, we're, we're able to be redeemed. We're able to be set free because Jesus paid the ransom price to set us free from sin. And because we're set free from sin, that means we're also set free from the penalty of sin 
because the wages of sin is what? It's death. So we're set free from that penalty because of Jesus, because he paid the ransom. He redeemed us. He set us free. First Peter chapter one, verses 17 through 19 says, and if you call on the father who without partiality, so in other words, God shows no favorites, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. In other words, taking God seriously, knowing that you were not redeemed. In other words, you were not set free with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless or your empty conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed. In other words, that ransom was paid for you and you're set free now with the precious blood of Christ. That's what was used to, to set us free, to redeem us, to ransom us. And he was as he sacrificed or was sacrificed as of a lamb without blemish. He was faultless and without spot, perfect. Also, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He hung on a cross that was, of course, made, you know, made from a tree. And that quote actually is from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. You know, that's where, it's, you know, it was, it was alluding to in Galatians 3.13. So for he redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became the curse for us. In other words, he took the wrath of God upon himself in our place. He did that. But in what way was Christ cursed? In what way was he made to be sin? And in what way was he even forsaken on that cross? In what way? See, he was cursed, made to be sin and forsaken in a judicial way. In other words, he was judged for us because of us. Because of what he did for us. He was cursed for the kind of death that he died. And that's the way he was cursed, the, the type of death hanging on that cross, hanging on that tree because he stood in as our substitute. And that way he was cursed, made to be sin and forsaken. He was made to be sin offering. And, and, and that separation, by the way, while he was on the cross, you know, as he cried out to the father, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, as he was on that cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Speaking to his father, he sensed that that, that fellowship he once had wasn't, wasn't there. But, but, but notice that this separation was not from his divine nature. He has two natures, divine and human nature. The separation couldn't be from the divine nature because that means there will be some type of change. And the scripture says that God does not change. And so the separation Jesus was feeling, that, 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 that breaking that fellowship that Jesus was feeling was from his human nature. That's why in the previous lessons, we, we, we emphasize the fact that when you talk about Jesus, you have to ask, as, as he's saying things, as he's, as he's doing things, you, and as you come across those scriptures that are confusing, you have to ask, okay, which nature is he speaking from or doing this from? Is this the divine nature or the human nature? And so the separation that he experienced was 
that he experienced from the father was from the human nature. And this, of course, is what we imply. So Jesus, he went through all of this for us. But as we talk about the death of Jesus and point out things about his death, we, we have to talk about the extent of his death. What, how far does it go? How, how much does it cover? Well, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. There's our word again. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He died for sins of the whole world, of all of mankind. He satisfied God's righteous wrath against sin for all of mankind. And so any obstacle that's in the way of man, of humans having a relationship with God, any obstacle that that's removed. But and so the results of that atoning death of Christ is unlimited. This is unlimited atonement. And so, in other words, forgiveness, reconciliation, salvation is available for all. Jesus died for all. The propitiation for the sins of the world. And so the atonement and its scope and its extent is unlimited. But the atonement is limited when it comes to its application. And that's because only some will actually repent. And receive Jesus. And so the application of salvation is limited. Because some people reject Christ. Not that they don't have an opportunity to receive him and and spend eternity with him. But there are some, as we talk about the death of Christ, there is some evidence outside of the scriptures that talk about the death of Christ. And so just want to move to this. Quickly. So one of them is from Lucian, who's a Greek satirist in the second century. He says the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult. He called Christianity a cult into the world. It says, furthermore, their first lawgiver persuaded them that they were all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods and by worshiping that crucified sophist himself. So he called Jesus a crucified sophist and living under his law. So an acknowledgement, this is uh, what you would call an extra biblical source outside of the Bible source that attests to the fact that Jesus did die, that, that he was crucified. And then you had a letter from uh, Mara Bar Serapion after AD 70. And so this is a letter by a father to his son from prison. He says, would it vantage? What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that their kingdom was abolished. Then he mentioned Socrates, but Socrates did not die for good. He, he, he died for good. He lived on in the teaching of Plato. Pythagoras uh, did not die for good. He lived on in the statue of Hera, nor did the wise king die for good. Reference to Jesus. He lived on in the teaching which he had given. We're still talking about Jesus' teachings today. And then there's a third one, extra biblical source, Cornelius Tacitus. He lived in the second century, and he wrote about the reign of the evil emperor Caesar Nero, emperor of Rome. 
You know, and, and what Tacit is doing here is he's recording that Nero is shifting the blame for the burning of Rome from himself to the Christians. He's blaming it on the Christians. And so uh, Tacitus says, hence to suppress the rumor, he, Caesar Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most exquisite tortures, the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, speaking of Christ, the founder of the name was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Same thing that scriptures have. This, this person, I'm probably not even a believer. So he's put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, not only through Judea where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. And so what makes, as we talk about the death of Jesus, we talk about his sacrifice. What what makes his sacrifice better than the sacrifice of animals? What makes his sacrifice so great? You see, what makes his sacrifice so great is that, first of all, he's God on one hand and he's human on the other hand. And so it bridges the gap between man and God. And also, what makes his sacrifice better than that of animals is that Jesus is sinless. There was absolutely nobody else on this planet that could substitute for an atonement for our sins. Why? Because all humans are sinners and animals are not perfect. And so what you have here is an eternal God who had to die. But the only way he could die is that he took upon human flesh. And because an eternal being, God, died via the human flesh, because of that, guess what? All the sins that he's died for went retroactive to the past. He died for all present sins, and even all future sins. Why? Because an eternal being died for sins, was our atonement. And so his sacrifice, in other words, is enough to cover, is enough to atone. And so since the act of his flesh being crucified on the cross was done by an eternal being, guess how long your salvation is? Eternal. Your savior is eternal. That means your salvation is eternal. It was done by an eternal being. And needless to say, as we've gone through this study, if you heard it many times, we are utterly hopeless without Jesus and his death. Utterly hopeless. Because man by nature is a sinner separated from God. It tells us there in Isaiah 59 and 2, it says, but your iniquities, your wickedness have separated you from your God and your sins has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And so for the unbeliever, I would say, respond to this offer of salvation. Respond to it because the debt, yes, has been paid by the offended party. But in order to receive the benefits of that payment that Jesus made with his own blood. We we personally need to repent and put our trust in him for salvation. The debt's paid. So, So spiritually speaking, if you're not saved, stop showing the back of your head to God. His arms are stretched out towards you. Repent. Put your faith in him. Be complete that picture, that full picture of reconciliation. 
and become a citizen of heaven. In John 3, verse 18, Jesus says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. The unique son of God. He has not believed. And so the sin issue has been dealt with. The debt had been paid that we couldn't pay for. Jesus did that. And so if a person is still in condemnation, if a person goes to hell, that's not God's fault. It's because they choose not to believe, not to receive Jesus, not to put their trust in Jesus for salvation. They, they choose to turn away, to stiff arm God, to stiff arm Christ. And so if you're an unbeliever, I would encourage you to put your trust in Christ as soon as possible. But for the believer, how should we respond to the death of Christ? First of all, I would say be thankful. Be grateful that he died in our place. But, but another thing I would say is to remember his death. And this is what we're going to do tonight as we partake of communion. Because he says, do this in remembrance of me as we partake of that bread and partake of that cup of juice, which represents his blood. We, we're doing this to remember that great sacrifice. We get an opportunity to do that tonight. What a blessing. But, but, but then we should also share the good news. You know, if you go through the scriptures, you'll notice that when, when the gospel message is talked about, that good news is shared, you'll, you'll notice that Jesus dying for our sins is always included. In fact, when the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I determined to not know anything except Christ crucified. That, that was the main part of his message. And so share the news. Another way, this is another way we should respond to the death of Christ. Share that, hey, Jesus died for you. You don't have to uh, experience the wrath of God. You don't have to be separated from him forever in hell. And then the final point is Matt takes the stage is to live like you're grateful for that gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. Live like you're grateful. And I'm going to share this before I share the final scripture. You know, when our loved ones buy us a gift, they give us a gift. We, we proudly wear that gift. My, my children lately have, uh, you know, that I guess they're, you know, they're working and married and all that good stuff now. So, so now that I've, I've, I've graduated from ties and, and all the paper art from when they were kids, so now they're buying me shoes, you know, for birthdays, and, and, and it's, it's pretty cool. So, you know, the roles have reversed. And so, yeah, I, I wear the shoes that, that they buy for me. You know, in fact, in one of our meetings, I was, I was wearing one of, one, one of the pairs of shoes, and you know, Pastor Jim and the guys, they're, they're, they're kind of teasing me. Oh, you know, got some new shoes, huh? Like, well, well my, my children bought this for me, so I had to, <laughs> you know, so I kind of, you know. But yeah, I'm, 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 
you know, you proudly wear those gifts or whatever it may be or use those gifts. And so if you're grateful for the gift of salvation that's in Christ Jesus, in that same way that you're happy to, to use or wear those gifts that your loved ones give you, I, I would say to, to let your lives wear Jesus. In other words, to put on Christ Jesus, who is the greatest gift that we've ever received. In fact, Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. So live like you're grateful for that gift of salvation by wearing Jesus. And I guarantee you, if you put on Jesus in your daily lifestyle, you, you, you think the way he think, the way he thought, you, you speak the way he spoke, you do the things that he did, you, you live the way that he lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. I guarantee you, as you're wearing Christ, you know, yes, people may make fun of what you're wearing physically, but if you're wearing Christ, I'm personally going to tell you that Jesus looks good on you. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for that great sacrifice. And we pray over the elements of communion, praying that you will bless it, praying that as we partake, we do it gratefully, the grateful heart. We do it in remembrance of you and that we do it if, with the heart of um, humility and just asking for forgiveness if there's any Um, sin in our lives that that we haven't confessed. And so bless the remainder of our time. Bless my brothers and sisters as we leave this place, never from your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.